0: Welcome in to the the Colored Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Igo. We're nearly 48 hours removed from East Carolina's 27-25 defeat at the hands of Cincinnati inside Nipper Stadium on Sunday night. I've gotten back from the trip to Cincinnati. I've had time to digest what happened in Ohio. And I've got several thoughts, of which I will share on this post-game podcast before we turn the page to Houston And I am a bit conflicted on one hand, you know, you do have to first credit the team in a major way and the program, the coaching staff, the players, support staff, everybody, for how far this program has come. Just look at the last time ECU was at Cincinnati in 2020, and it was was a a bloodbath. 55-17, Cincinnati was out there running – fake punts up by 30 or 40 points in the fourth quarter which I think led to a lot of ECU's motivation for this game we'll get into that Um, the way the guys competed I mean look ECU is is a really good football team right now and you know offense defense you got playmakers on both sides of the ball you got legitimate talent they play hard they play physical when they're executing they can beat anybody on their schedule you know there are a few special teams away uh, plays away from being nine and one right now and in the top 20 maybe top 15 nationally with your only loss to Tulane and instead we're talking about uh six and four team which you know I'll get more into just the, the missed opportunities of this season as we move forward but um you know, just a couple of years ago, people were asking for, hey, let's just get back to the point where we're competitive and we're not embarrassing ourselves every time we're on national TV. And now you've had two consecutive Friday night games, national TV. If anybody's watching college football, they're watching your game on ESPN2. ECU goes to BYU, a national brand. You win that one in thrilling fashion. And in this one, you have a highly competitive game, a great comeback. Uh, some phenomenal individual efforts and you come up just short against another national brand in Cincinnati and you know we've reached the point right now where this coaching staff and these players have gotten ECU football back win or lose I say going into the game on the final pregame podcast there's a lot to be excited about and and losing on the scoreboard does not change that at all I, I think this was the exact scenario I saw playing out I I figured it would go into the fourth quarter be an extremely tight football game EC would have to make the big plays at the end to win it just so happened that Cincinnati made that one fourth down stop they made a couple of key plays on special teams a couple of key plays on offense to win and in the end they've got it a great program they have they've been the elite program in the American I personally think they're going to be playing for the AAC championship again. Uh, I see it being a rematch between them and UCF. Uh, I, I just don't see Tulane being able to beat Cincinnati in a couple weeks, especially in in Nippert Stadium uh, on Senior Day. But you know, crazier things have happened either way. ECU has crushed the top twenty-five team in UCF, and by the way, it does take some of the sting out of the loss that UCF went into Tulane and won now. Even if ECU would have beaten Cincinnati, the Pirates would have had UCF. They needed UCF to either lose to South Florida in the finale or Navy this coming week. You know, the odds of that happening are pretty slim. <clears throat> the Pirates still would have had to win out, beating Houston and Temple. Or they would have had to have Tulane lose to both SMU and Cincinnati. And, you know, the odds of those things happening were probably slim to none. Of course, it'd be great right now to be seven and three for ECU and four and two in conference and thinking you still got a shot at making the conference title but you know the 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 reality is even if you won at Cincinnati your odds to be on the outside looking in will be much greater than being in the championship even if you won out so that is a little that does take a little bit of the sting out of the loss still still hurts though still hurts because you had a chance to to really do uh something special, you had a chance to end that long home winning streak in Cincinnati and in, in the the Bearcats. Man, I think they know they got away with one. I mean, they they know that they they were pretty lucky to win that one, and you know they may they may say otherwise. Their fan base may say say otherwise, but East Carolina outplayed them outside of three plays in that football game, and. Uh, there were some questionable officiating, which we'll also get into. I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna sit here and blame the game on the refs. Look, ECU gave up on a 100-yard kickoff return. They gave up two explosive plays defensively. You can't expect to win on the road against one of the top teams in college football at home. The nation's second home, or the second longest home winning streak, at 32 games now behind Clemson's 39 you just can't expect to go in there and win by making those critical mistakes and ECU almost did in the end which is which is pretty amazing and i think says a lot about where this program is but the other the other side of this is just the frustration of the missed opportunity that you know regardless of how these last two games play out and ECU still has a lot to play for don't get me wrong the conference championship though off the table and i do think it is a missed opportunity with this football team and again they should be a commended on one hand for everything they've accomplished all the seniors all the guys who won't be back next year because they certainly will lead this program in a much much better place than they found it and that is the most important thing but also there's going to be a little part of them that looks back and says man we we missed an opportunity to really to really cement our legacy and potentially be a conference championship championship team, potentially be a top 25 team. Because you should have beat NC State, you should have beat Navy, and you should have beat Cincinnati. I mean, that's just the that's that's the that's the way fans are going to look back at this season. Um, you know, you hope you finish 8 and 4, go to a bowl game, win that, win nine games, and that would be the most wins ECU has had in um nearly 10 years and it would be one of the probably a handful of non-win seasons in program history. Uh, I know there's only been two 10-win seasons. I'm, I'm sure there's been a lot more 9 win seasons, so it would still be a, a great accomplishment, though. But you had a chance to do something truly special, and because those three games, those three critical games, either you couldn't make the play on special teams, you couldn't make the kick, the tackle, whatever, or you had the critical turnover at the wrong time, such as NC State, especially as Navy, late in the fourth quarter. You know, those are the plays that are going to keep this season from being a great one. Still, still a very good season already. It can become an even better season the way they finish down the stretch. But you know, it's not going to be a great season because it's not going to end with a conference championship. Um, You know, maybe you can argue that hey, if they win nine and they win a bowl championship, that's a great season. You know, I guess it depends on your definition of great. But still, a part of of me, a part of everybody, is going to look back at the 2022 ECU football team, and say, man, man, what if they just would have tackled the guy on the 100-yard kickoff return? What if they just would have not thrown the pick against Navy, driving for the game-winning score at the end of regulation? What if Owen Daffer's kick would have gone through against NC State? You know, three huge moments, three huge games, three huge missed opportunities, and that's That's the unfortunate side of this, you know, you have to sum it up in that manner. But, um, you know, you also have to take the step back and say, hey, you know, two years ago, you weren't even in the same class as Cincinnati. You weren't even in the same class as NC State. And here you are now should have beaten them. And now the the next step for this program, we'll get into this more in the offseason, will be how do you become the American Athletic Conference Championship team you want to be. The other thing is you're going to lose a lot from this team, especially offensively. Holt Naylor's gone for sure. Uh, you're going to lose a couple of senior offensive linemen. Uh, Justin Red will not be back. Noah Henderson, it sounds like, will not be back even though he's got a year left of eligibility. You know, so you're going to have to replace your tackles. You do have some guys that have been in the program. You got Parker Moore coming back. And, you know, we don't know what Keith Mitchell will do. He is draft eligible, but he does have two years of eligibility left. Um, you know, you're going to lose Isaiah Winstead. We'll see what happens with CJ Johnson, who's got a year of eligibility left. So you're going to lose Ryan Jones. And then there are a number of guys defensively who are in that year or in that time, like Jeremy Lewis, Gerard Stringer, who have an extra year left, but are already going to be graduates who have a decision to make. So um, certainly a, a lot of your roster will come back, but you got to find a quarterback. You're going to have to find some receivers, a tight end. So it's not going to be – you're going to have to find offensive tackles. Especially offensively, you're going to have to reload a little bit. And so you kind of miss an opportunity with what has been a very good offense at times this year. You know, statistically a really good offense. But as far as putting points on the board, maybe not as good as what the yards say. And that's a little bit disappointing, I think. And it will be disappointing for uh, for the guys who end up graduating this year. But certainly still a lot to be proud of. So those are just my big big picture thoughts coming out of this game at Cincinnati. Let's dive into more of the storylines. And, you know, anytime you lose a game, you have to talk, I think, negative first because that's what the fans want to hear, and that's our job. Hey, why did ECU lose this game? How do we best sum it up? I mean, at the end of the day, ECU, you look at all the stats, 454 total yards. Compared to 310 of Cincinnati. 79 plays ran by ECU. 57 by Cincinnati. Time of possession. Dominated in ECU's favor. 36-26 to 23-34. Those stats are, are you know, 9 times out of 10 winning numbers. No turnovers offensively. Forcing a turnover. All those things in your favor. You would have told me. All this stuff coming into the game, I would have said, yeah, ECU's going to win. The problem, special teams. All the hidden yardage from special teams. You add 100 on the kickoff return by Cincinnati. You add some of the key punting differences. Cincinnati's kicker ends up going 2 of 2 on field goals. ECU's kicker goes 1 of 2 on field goals. Um, You know, you look at the punting at the end of the day, and it's really not too big of a difference. From the standpoint of East Carolina's uh, punting, I believe, average. Let's see here. I got the numbers. Cincinnati averages 46.5 yards per punt. ECU averages 42 yards per punt. So not a huge difference there. And Luke Larson did have some of his best punts of the year. He had one over 50. Um, And then he had three that were, were, uh, excuse me, one that was fair caught. ECU fair caught three of theirs. But Mason Fletcher, I thought, for Cincinnati consistently booted it well. And in the fourth quarter, had his best punt of the night, 54 yards, I believe, down to the ECU 7. The Pirates uh, get a big run. I think it may have actually been down to the 3. And then the Pirates get a big run, but can't go any further. than Luke Larson only able to punt at 30 yards. Cincinnati takes over at the 40. So you flip field position there. Difference of 21 yards on the punt, and then all of a sudden they get a few first downs, they get a penalty and they're in field goal range. That ends up being the game winning field goal is no, neither team scores the rest of the way. Uh, you, you had the hundred yard kick return uh, Cincinnati averaged 35.6 yards per kick return. ECU averaged uh, 13 yards per kick return. So a massive difference there, of course the 100 yard kick and then the, the field goal. So look i don't i don't know special teams wise you know for me you know like it's it's not a scheme problem with the 100 yard kickoff return i mean the guys were there the guys just didn't make the tackle so like people are always saying hey change or get a different special teams coach you know at the end of the day the guy has to make the tackle maybe you could argue you should have different personnel on special teams but the the scheme for the kickoff return coverage and the scheme for that has been fine all year You know, to me, maybe you look at the personnel, I think they got to go out and try to find a uh, transfer punter this offseason to to either compete with Luke Larson or to try and win that job because right now the punting has just left a lot to be desired. If Larson had punted it consistently all year like he had on Friday night, except for the 30-yard punt, I think you would be happy with that, but we've just not seen that. I mean, he came to the game averaging 37 yards a punt where Cincinnati punter uh, came to the game averaging 48 yards a punt. You typically want at least over 40 yards. You lose that hidden yardage consistently if not. So uh, the field goal kicking thing, you've got a lot of field goal kickers on the roster. You know, I, I don't, I'm don't. i not going to sit here and pretend to know the in- intricacies of holding and, and snapping and all that, but uh, something with the operation needs to get fixed where they have the laces in, laces out. You know, the timing seems to be off at times. Uh, I personally think they need to bring in a kicking specialist. You know, you've had guys in the past, not special teams coordinators. For those that don't, don't understand, special teams coordinators for most teams in college football don't know a whole lot about kicking. They're more about the schemes, coverage, protection, that sort of stuff. They're not kicking experts. Kicking, holding, snapping generally is a different animal. And guys go to specific camps to train for that. And some way, somehow, I think ECU needs to find somebody with firsthand kicking experience this off season to bring those guys in to work with Owen Daffer, to work with Andrew Conrad, work with the holder snappers to try and refine this stuff. You know, like Ruff McNeil had Ryan Doherty on snap on staff, former ECU punter, and the kicking game for most of his tenure was uh, was excellent. And I don't think that's a, uh, you know, it's not like Kirk Dahl, who was the special teams coach at times. It's not like he was out there instructing Mike Barbour or um, Warren Harvey how to kick. You know, that was more so done by either their offseason coach or by Ryan Doherty. So uh, I I would like to see that position added if possible. Obviously, you've only got so much to work with with your coaching budget and you probably can't blow $150,000 or so on a kicking analyst, but maybe find some way to bring somebody in like that to kind of shore up that spot there. Uh, Because I think the kickoff coverage thing and kick return has been solid for the most part this year. You know, we'll see what happens with with coaching changes or anything like that down the line. Um, But again, the ECU entered the game ranking in the top 3rd, top fourth of the country in kickoff coverage, punt coverage, all that. So that hasn't been the issue. It's been more kicking, of course, until Friday when two guys missed a tackle and the guy ends up going 100 yards. So special teams, whatever way you want to slice it, it has been costly this year, and it's the difference between 9-1 and one and 6-4. and four. That's just the, you know, you can say it's a team game, all that. But at the end of the day, if you've got quality special teams in a quality kicking game, you're here 9-1 and one right now. It's that simple. So that's what makes it frustrating. Um, other aspects of this game I want to talk about, Keaton Mitchell was phenomenal in the second half. And, you know, honestly, the Cincinnati was dominating the line of scrimmage in the first half, and, and they were jumping on the inside zone, the the stretch runs, all that sort of stuff, and you know, Brett Hickman said they sw- switched to kind of the mid-zone run in the second half, and they were really firing off the ball, and, and Cincinnati couldn't stop it. I mean, Mitchell was just gashing them, got to the point where he was at 112 yards on 16 attempts, averaging 7 yards a carry. They didn't have an answer for him, and their answer was to, to knock him out of the game. Uh, Brian threats the safety from Cincinnati with a— with a just an absolutely vicious hit, as he came across the field and laid the wood on Mitchell on the pass down the sidelines, and I'll say, you know, I've I've seen some people say that Holton left him out the dry or whatever. Um, watching it live, the safety made a threats made a hell of a play to get over there, and yeah, he covered a ton of ground because when Holton released that thing, he was not even in the vicinity and he just broke and and made a good read on it keaton beat the guy in coverage um that was trying to stop him and it was the right read by holton the safety made a heck of a play until he just absolutely came in full speed and you know maybe that's why he hit him so hard he was running so fast but puts his head down doesn't look where he's hitting ball had already gone through keaton mitchell's hands by the time threats had you know, lowered his head basically two yards away from him and then struck him um, right in the, the face mask. And, you know, yeah, I will say on replay it didn't look as bad on replay as it did live, but still, to me, clearly, he as he went in for the hit, there was no plan to try and take the football out of Mitchell's hands. He was just trying to hit him as hard as possible, and you can say it's a football play, that sort of stuff, but you don't lower your head and not look at your target uh, and you know not expect to be criticized for a targeting hit. And the way it happened, the way it unfolded, the fact that Keaton was gashing them, the fact that the guy just got up and, and wasn't apologetic at all, um, showed no remorse for the hit, and was getting dapped up by his teammates on the sideline. The huddle was quite frankly, seemingly proud of the hit, uh, that they had not Keaton out. And, you know, I, I just thought it was dirty. Um, and I don't think it was as dirty as I initially thought upon the hit, but I do think it was pretty malicious, even looking back at the replay and even slowing it down. Like to me, there was no intent to, um, to hit Mitchell in the midsection and just force an incomplete pass. I think he was trying to intentionally hurt Keaton Mitchell and, you know, it's, it's a college safety. I don't know how much you can discipline him. He has already been ejected for targeting once this year. That's probably not a coincidence. I do know, and I don't know if this is sour grapes or or what, but I've had like three or four ECU sources telling me Cincinnati is is easily the dirtiest team in the league, and they don't even try to hide it. So, look, when you're the best team in the league and you're beating everybody, maybe you get some sour grapes, but, you know, that's just, that's just how they play. That's their style. And there was one point after a timeout where they were almost fighting in the huddle themselves, amongst themselves, Um, and that was certainly interesting. The coaches didn't really do too much about it. It was mid-game right after the in-sportsmanlike conduct penalty where they uh, pushed C.J. Johnson, and it was a nice flop by C.J. But, uh, yeah, just just kind of a – you know, maybe that's just their brand, and to their credit, they're a physical team. They've won doing that stuff, but you can certainly say that the hit – as much as it cost Cincinnati losing the guy for the game, I think certainly, certainly played out in their favor that Mitchell was unable to return. You know, we don't get injury reports or anything like that, like NFL, but obviously he was evaluated for a concussion, unable to return. Um, And with two minutes left in the third quarter, ECU goes on to score to take the lead, but You know, you just miss that game-breaking ability. And and quite honestly, as as good as Marlon Gunn played, and he had a nice 23-yard run himself, and Keaton Mitchell might have scored on that, by the way, if he was in at that point. But you just not having him in there is a major difference maker, not only from the standpoint he can break one at any moment, but Cincinnati, I guarantee you, has to play things differently when two is in the game because they know if they miss a tackle – if they bust a gap, he's going the house. And, you know, with Marlon Gunn in there, no offense to Marlon Gunn gonna be a great player. He doesn't have home run speed right now. And um ECU missed that. I think ECU wins the game with Keaton Mitchell healthy and playing through the remainder of the game. They missed him on the final drive. Um, they missed his pass catching ability out of the backfield. When he catches it, he's as dangerous as any back in the country. Obviously when he runs it, he's as dangerous as any back in the country, but that's just another thing you kind of say, what if, man? What if that guy didn't take out Keaton Mitchell on that sideline pass? You know, the Pirates probably win the game, and that's a tough pill to swallow. So uh, the good news is for Keaton, gotten a lot of questions about that. Um, he did. He was on the field post game. you know, talking with his teammates. Looked fine. Very similar to BYU when he got taken out early there. You know, was very aware, alert, traveled back with the team, seemed fine. Um, no big deal there. Uh, the C.J. Johnson situation, obviously first great game for C.J., seven catches, 123, and the touchdown. But the last play of the game uh, on the hook and ladder attempt, he gets tackled out of bounds by Deshaun Page. And, um, you know, you can say it was a hard tackle, whatever. I don't, I don't think that one was as dirty as uh, the, the hit on Keith Mitchell. But it was a pretty vicious tackle to end the game. He gets thrown on his neck, head, and I did think it was kind of I don't know, tacky or whatever, that pace, uh, pace was sitting there flexing over him. There had been a lot of jawing during the game. But either way, uh, C.J. seriously hurt on the play, or at least we thought so initially. I didn't even realize it had happened. We, we make our way down from the press box after the final play, and we kind of have to rush to the field. We get down on the field, and there was just a huddle. Uh, Holton was kneeling down, several of the training staff, and we didn't realize until somebody pointed out to us that C.J. was in the midst of the huddle. Seeking medical attention, they stretcher him off, take him to the local hospital. Uh, I was told he got expansive testing, extensive testing. No uh, injuries were found. They checked everything—spine, neck, head, whatever—and uh, ended up being released the next morning. Flew back to Greenville with some ECU training staff. So CJ checked out fine. I think it maybe was a situation. and I'm not again. I'm not a doctor, but just talking with people, maybe a situation where he takes the, a funny hit. Gets a stinger, body goes numb a little bit, and, you know, probably just freaked out, got scared, and you always want to be cautious in that situation. But it uh, sounds like C.J. will be fine, would not be shocked at all. To see him play this week, we'll see on Keaton Mitchell. But I'm um, certainly thankful that both those guys seem to be okay, at least in terms of bouncing back, compared to how it looked at the time, uh, because it was certainly worrisome at the time. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll get into more of the storylines. We'll talk about some of the penalties uh, that were called and those that were not called during the game. Also, other reasons uh, why East Carolina fell short at Cincinnati on Friday night, 27 to 25. We'll be right back on the Hoist the Colors podcast. All right, we're back on the Hoist of Colors podcast. Um, I do want to say, before we get into some of the, the referees and questionable calls, questionable whatever, reviews, etc. Uh So, ECU had the ball going into Cincinnati territory or around midfield on the final possession. And I'll tell you what, guys. When Holt Naylor's made the fourth, I believe it was fourth and twelve or somewhere around there, 4th and 10. Uh, let me see if I can find it real quick as I record this live. Yeah, 4th and 12. Holt Naylor is getting tackled and somehow shakes off a dude who's like 270, literally tugging at his legs and is able to get the ball out to C.J. Johnson, who makes the bobbling catch on the sideline to the Cincinnati 43 for 12 yards on fourth and 12 to extend the game. I really thought East Carolina was going to win at that point. That was one of the best individual plays from an East Carolina quarterback that I've ever seen, and I don't think that's hyperbole. Like, I mean, the dude just shrugged off a, a definite sack, made the play, and at that point you're you're under 230 to go, under two minutes or so. Um, and it just felt like – Man, that's the defining play right there that we'll look back on when ECU is at the end of the year in the conference championship game and it just wasn't meant to be. And I just wanted to point that play out because sometimes those plays get lost in in games that you end up losing instead of being kind of memorialized like another play this year like we saw against NC State, the the goal line stand. Uh, I thought that play was just an incredible effort by – by Holton, Um, and Holton, throughout the night, I thought played, you know, he didn't play his best game, but I thought he played his toughest game. You know, I I heard late, late in the week going into the game that his back had acted up, and basically, he, he needed treatment on it all Thursday, all Friday, just to get to the point where he was good enough to play, and play effectively, and for him to do what he did against one of the best pass defenses in college football, one of the best pass rushes was not sacked. Was very aware at getting the ball out quickly. Twenty-six of forty-six, 280, two eighty-two touchdowns, and there were a couple of throws that were in the coverage but didn't have a pick. Um, gave ECU a chance at the end of the day to win the game. Shoulder popped out on what could have been a late hit as we transition now into some of the officiating issues. And again, I don't want this to sound like I'm blaming the league or whatever for rigging the game or the officials for costing ECU. I just, it's just frustrating to continually sit here over the years and see ECU not get the benefit of the doubt on any of these calls, especially on the road and conference play. Like it's become a theme and I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but it does make you kind of scratch your head at times. And we saw so many instances in this game where calls were just not made in, in ECU's favor on plays that seemed to, sh- you know, t- plays that seemed pretty obvious that the call either should have been made or there should have been a review, and somehow those things are just ignored or go the other way from the officiating crew. You know, even one of the CBS sports analysts, uh, I believe Aaron Taylor, tweeted about it, and he's not even a an ESPN analyst. If he's tweeting about it, and this was in the first half, you know, there, there's got to be something to it. So, uh, makes you scratch your head a little bit. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that the American is just trying to get Cincinnati to the AAC championship. Although uh, Cincinnati UCF rematch would probably make for the best TV ratings, and guarantee another Access Bowl and more money. But it uh, it is a little fishy, and. You know, I think that maybe maybe it's just a case of Cincinnati's playing in their home stadium. The refs know, quote-unquote, who's supposed to win, and they're scared to make those calls. But uh, it just it's just frustrating, man. Um, so let's go through some of them. You had the the hit on Holtan Adams, which wasn't egregious, I thought, but easily could have been called. He had released the ball. The guy grabs him by the legs. He falls on his shoulder, pops out of place. By the way, he was in serious pain at that point. Goes in, gets his shoulder repopped in for what the fiftieth time this year. Comes back in, like the the warrior he has become, um, and uh, continues on to have a very fine game. But you know, all night Cincinnati is in your face. They're playing press man coverage, and they're they're grabbing, uh, they're pushing. You've got the pass interference call over the middle on CJ Johnson where yes, the ball was not easily catchable, but the Cincinnati defender just shoved CJ to the ground as he changed direction and tried to get to the football. And I don't know if he would have caught or not, probably not, but still, to just pick up that flag and to wave it off, I guess they deemed it uncatchable, but how do you know after some of the miraculous catches CJ Johnson made throughout the game that he was not gonna corral that one as well? So I thought to call that and then to wave it off was, uh, quite frankly, BS. You had on the last series, Isaiah Winstead was literally getting tackled uh, from the line of scrimmage through his break. Holt Naylor still completes the pass to him. No call. Somehow no penalty was called. Um, And then, of course, the final play to CJ at the the slot corner basically held him uh, out of his break and never let go. Um, no call, you know, wasn't the easiest throw and catch in the world, but certainly with him not being able to elevate off the ground because he was getting held, uh, probably had a, a lot to do with the ball being uh, a little high and CJ not being able to get there. So despite CJ begging for a flag, no flag came again, sometimes refs swallow the whistle in that spot. They didn't at BYU on a very similar throw to Isaiah Winstead. This one, they do swallow, and Cincinnati ends up running out the clock for the most part. After that, I think ran it down to 10 seconds before punting. Um, so, just frustrating there. Uh, there were other instances as well. Isaiah Winstead appeared to to catch the two-point conversion. It was ruled initially incomplete. But upon further review, the ball, which was bobbled, he looks like he pins it on his shoulder with a foot down and then he transitions the ball to his hands, which to me would signal possession. You can have possession of the football if it's pinned against your body. It's no difference than if you're pinning the ball against your chest or pinning it against your shoulder. Possession is possession. And you, know, you can argue either way. Was it a catch? Was it not? Maybe it wouldn't have been overturned at the end of the day. But if you're the AAC replay official, how the hell do you not call down to the field and say, hey, I think we should take a look at this? It's a 25-24 game. It's a, you know, a conference championship could be on the line. It's November. It's going into the fourth quarter, late third quarter. What the hell are you doing? Your job is to signal down and ask for a replay on any questionable call. That is a questionable call. I just don't understand it, man. It pisses me off. Uh, whether it's ECU or some random game, and how college football and how specifically the American Athletic Conference is complete dog crap when it comes to the replay system. And how many times do we have to go through this? (sighs) Don't even get me started on the Tulsa screw job in 2020. Still the most egregious, completely pathetic excuse for AAC officiating call I've ever seen in my life. At that football game. But this one is just. It just makes you shake your head man. It just. No great football game should be. Decided or altered by. The lack of a replay review. Or a blown replay review. And I just don't get. How how you drop the ball there. And again would it have been overturned. I don't know. But at least. At least take a damn look at it. That's your job. Alright. That's all I got on that. You had a couple of block in the backs that were clearly missed. Again, not making excuses, stating facts. You cannot take your hands as a blocker, put them on the back of a defender, extend your hands, and shove the guy out of the way. That is a penalty. That should be a penalty. Look it up in the damn rule book. Chance Bates, in pursuit of the uh, Trey Tucker screenplay, comes over, gets shoved in the back by the Cincinnati tight end, I believe, and no call is made. Now, he was running pretty hard. Would he have over-pursued anyway? Maybe, but we'll never know because the damn penalty wasn't called, and therefore Cincinnati gets a 55-yard touchdown on the the screen. Uh, The kickoff return, again, should not have missed the tackles, but at the end of the day, there was a block in the back right, right in front of the football. Right in front of the officiating crew. There's like five officials looking at that. What are they doing? I just... Uh, it just... I'm I'm clearly at a loss for words. I can't even speak. Um, so two block in the backs that were not called on Cincinnati scoring plays. Meanwhile, ECU gets... I think three or four, third or fourth down conversions that were called back due to holding penalties. And I will say, just about all of them were legit. The reason you get holding calls against a team like Cincinnati is because they are freaking legit up front. I mean, those guys, Ivan Pace alone, I mean, you you practically had to tackle him to keep him from getting to the quarterback. And there were others certainly capable as well. But I just found it... A little fishy that the flag comes out pretty late in basically every occasion. Um, I know for sure the the one that Keaton Mitchell called and run, the guy didn't throw the flag until Keaton Mitchell got past the first down marker. Then you also had the, uh, the holding penalty called back after a fourth down conversion as well on Marlon Gunn's run, I believe it was. That was probably the most questionable one to me. I think they called that one on Parker Moore. But just uh, yeah, interesting how these things unfold uh, because it just seems like when ECU does make an error, they're they're not going to miss it. Whereas when Cincinnati makes an error, uh, maybe either those black jerseys blend in with the green turf, or you know something's going on. I don't know. It just it makes you wonder. Again, ECU shouldn't have put itself in that situation. They should have made the tackle. Should have had better defense on the screen. Um. And I'm not here to say ECU's defense played a perfect game. I mean, there were like five open guys that Ben Bryant just missed. Uh, There were two or three walk-in touchdowns that he just missed throws on. Honestly, I mean, he was probably the least impressive quarterback. I don't know if he just had a bad game or what. Probably the least impressive quarterback I've seen this year that ECU has played. Uh, I can see why they were chanting for Evan Prater. So, again, that's what also makes it frustrating on an, on an off night by their quarterback. Couldn't get the win at the end of the night as uh, as UC wins at 27 to 25. But, uh, yeah, I, I do want to say um, I did think Nippert Stadium from being there was an awesome atmosphere. And, you know, we were down on the field pregame, students Right on top of the ECU end zone, and they were giving it to several of the ECU guys. And you know, credit their students; they were into it. They were chanting uh, a lot of f words. But hey, man, like you know, that's your job as a student body to get inside the heads of the other team. I thought ECU didn't do the best job of, I don't know, ignoring some of the that stuff. You know, they they seem to be embracing it. And maybe that's a good thing too. Um, it certainly beats going to. Some of these road venues, like when I went to Tulane and there was maybe seven students there total um, and and other venues that we've been to in the past for conference play and other venues we're going to go to like next year when ECU travels to Rice, North Texas, whatever. And, you know, it's just – it's not going to be the same, obviously, as it is at ECU. But uh, I thought the atmosphere was great, 38,199, 10th largest crowd in Cincinnati football history but they packed the place out, and again, ECU gets that pretty much every week, but they packed the place out. They were loud. They were into it, and, and just kind of shows you, obviously, what success does. I mean, hell, imagine if ECU had a 32-game winning streak at home. I mean, Dowdy Ficklin, they'd have to expand the place to 60,000. I mean, probably not, but still, it would be a madhouse if ECU had experienced a Cincinnati-type run in Greenville. So, you know, it was it was a fun game to cover, and again, ECU has nothing to hang his head about. You know, we can talk about the missed opportunities, which we have on this show, but uh, fun game to be at, fun game to cover, just as a sports writer, and uh, I thought at the end of the day, ECU was certainly worthy of winning the football game, uh, but the mistakes cost them. I knew when they gave up the kick return, and certainly when they gave up the, the long passing plays, it was going to be very tough, and you know, you just have to play so perfect the rest of the way and ECU almost did in several areas after those critical mistakes but in the end there's just too much to overcome on the road in that environment with maybe some calls not going your way you just have to avoid putting yourself in that situation so tough loss for ECU they fall to 6 and 4 on the season, 3-3 three and three in American Athletic Conference play. Another huge game coming up this Saturday. We finally got the kickoff time, 2 o'clock in Dowdy-Ficklin Stadium. Final home game of the year. They'll recognize the seniors probably around 135, 140, if I had to guess, maybe a little earlier. So get in your seats early. These guys deserve a huge sendoff. We'll have the list later this week of the guys who will be uh, officially recognized the seniors and any guys who are not using uh, the rest of their eligibility or have a decision to make after the season and opt to walk now. So, um, big game. Houston comes in. They are also 6-4, and four, and yes, conference title out of the picture, but you still have a chance to match last season's win total, then a chance to surpass it at Temple. The following week, we'll get more into... Uh, What to expect from the Houston Cougars. ECU has opened as a six-point favorite. Total, I think, is at 66.5, so expecting a high-scoring game is Las Vegas. And certainly with the way Houston has been putting up points, uh, that is certainly an understandable expectation. But hope you guys enjoyed the podcast as we took a look back at Cincinnati. We'll be taking your questions for our next podcast as well. Uh, Got basketball coming up Wednesday against Hampton. Mike Schwartz's team is off to a 2-0 start. We'll continue to mix in some basketball talk in the days ahead too. But for now, that will do it for the Hoisty Colors podcast. We will talk to you guys next time. Thanks for listening.